another Crossover Chronicles podcast. This is John Cannon, and I am today with Amin Al-Hassan of ESPN. And uh, fortunately, Amin uh, worked with a guy that I've known for a long, long time down in Phoenix who has put us together, and uh, we can chat a little bit. And Amin, thank you very much for taking some time with me today. No, no problem. You know, I really thought this was going to be uh, a, a chat mostly about you and how you got to where you are and, and things like that, and that we would talk about the coronation of the Warriors. And then last night, uh, things took a bit of a, of a turn. <laughs> so we actually have basketball to talk about, which I think uh, I think we should. It's more interesting for the people also. <laughs> yes. I, well, I, I think you're... I think you're interesting to people who would know about how how you how you got where you are, but um, uh, but I but I would agree with you that more interesting probably would be the NBA Finals. So were you as surprised as as I was to see what I saw yesterday? Uh, I, I wasn't surprised to see Cleveland come out excited and and play well early and and play with energy and gusto. We knew that this was they were going to win one game. This had to be it because if they lost. Uh, game three, then game four would have been flat. They would have lost that one as well. I'm surprised that the Warriors came out as flat as they did. I'm surprised that after cutting it down to about nine points at halftime, they came back inexplicably with another bad lineup with Andrew Bogut out there. It's kind of uncharacteristic of Steve Kerr and, and you know his feel for the pulse of the game. And I'm surprised that I mean, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, again, they, they, they did not look like themselves. Clay Thompson in particular just rushed so many shots. He looked all out of sorts there from the very beginning. Those are the surprising parts. But uh, the fact that Cleveland came out and played well, I, I kind of expected that, especially with Love Out. Yes, well, that and that brings us to the next question, you know, that as people who have really paid a lot of attention to the Warriors the last couple of, of years – I'm going to assume that that you were in the camp that believed that the Kyrie and Love additions to the Cavs last year would not have made it easier for the Cavs to beat the Warriors. It might have even made it harder. And I I think that on at least one of those two points, we got some proof of that yesterday. Right, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people, whenever they cited the absence of those two guys last year, I would laugh because they, they pretend as though, you get all of the defensive benefits that they had last year playing the guy they did, and then you just add 25 to, you know, 35 to 50 points on top of that. Like, oh, and then you get these extra 50 points, and, and boom, you know, we win every game by 20 points. And it doesn't quite work like that because when you play those guys, particularly when you play them together, you're sacrificing something on the other end. Uh, and it's not something minuscule, it's something significant on the other end. And so... By the way, the first two games, another reason why they got ran out of the gym was because Ty Lu had this infatuation with playing those guys and playing a certain playing a certain style. And, and I really felt like, you know, the, the love injury forced his hand to play lineups that he should have been playing all along. It doesn't just mean a change at a position, especially, it's interesting, last year, love's injury, there wasn't a Richard Jefferson to right. put in. And now there is. And now Jefferson didn't come out of nowhere. He he's played very well throughout the playoffs for this yeah. team and and they really got, you know, they got lucky. It's all you can say. I mean, people yeah. I, I resent that when people say it about the Warriors, 
But you have to say it about the Cavs with this love injury. They got lucky and and were able to put Jefferson into the starting lineup at the three, put LeBron to the at the four, and and got much more production out of both of those spots. Right, exactly. And I th- I think that's the idea is that lucky in the sense that if Love doesn't get hurt, they never figure it out. Right? It's it's apparent because Tyler just could say, hey, we're just going to have to play faster, and it doesn't work like that. But also, um, again, by playing RJ. It wasn't that RJ is so much better than Kevin Love or anything like that. It's that now LeBron plays the four. Now he's matched up with Draymond Green, and now that's a that's a that works twofold. And one is that LeBron can defend Green a lot better uh, than vice versa. Uh, and and at the four, he's able to operate with a lot more room and space than he is as a wing, as a non-spacer himself. And where he's guarded usually by Andre Iguodala. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and again, and and Draymond Green had a, had time on him, and and he abused him. You know, he blew by him, and then when he blew by him, he, he, he killed him with the outside jumper, which he, you know he fell into a rhythm with last night. And then defensively, he kind of harassed. I mean, Draymond Green had a bad game last night. But again, I got to go back to Steve Kerr. His insistence on playing Bogut, his insistence on staying big, particularly coming out of the halftime when they knew it was a disaster in the first half. They came back again. They, it was almost like they reversed roles. Steve Kerr became Ty Lue and Ty Lue became Steve Kerr. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I wrote a, a piece uh, during the Oklahoma City series that uh, described how after game two of that series, aliens came and they took the Warriors and the Thunder up to their spaceship for experiments and they sent down replicas that were really good i mean they really looked like the same players but they they don't really understand basketball that well the aliens so the thunder for games three and four played with confidence they they hit big three-pointers they played great and an aggressive and enthusiastic defense they shared the basketball and, and the warriors played quickly and early shots and threw the ball over the gym and then and things were so bad that the Thunder got 70 points in each of the first halves of those two games and the aliens said you know we can't keep this up they're going to figure this out that something has happened here so they returned the players for game five and things went back to kind of their normal their normal course I, I felt almost last night like the same thing happened and including the coaches this time they took yeah. the coaches too I, th- I think what happened what happened in Oklahoma City was, and I, and I said that when they were up 3-1, I said it all the time. People were saying, is Billy Donovan out coaching Steve Kerr? And I said, no, Billy Donovan isn't doing anything different. Their players are making shots, particularly Andre Roberts. That was the difference. Andre Roberts had made shots. And because he made shots, all of a sudden, the Warriors tackled him. Oh, we're just not going to guard him anymore. That, 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 that didn't work. And as soon as he came back down to earth, back to life. On the road. Like, yeah. Well, on the road and then at home again in Game Six. He was well, right, but it's much harder to to do it on the road, no, and then he lost his confidence that, after he you, had a bad well, game on the road. Well, I think you can say that about guys like, for instance, Dr. Smith. I think you can say that on the road or at home. You know, time confidence, off confidence. I think when you talk about Andre Robertson, I don't care where they're playing. He can be playing in his house with his mom cooking. If he's making those shots, that's a not, I'll, I'll keep shooting them because sooner or later you will turn back into the pumpkin. This clock will start midnight. And 
all of a sudden, <laughs> these shots that you were making, which were way over your head, you shouldn't have been making, will, will turn into misses again. And and I, I don't I don't I, in his case I don't think you know there are guys out there. Um, if Tony Allen, for instance, had started making shots last year uh, right. in the Memphis series, all right, okay, prove it to me. You're a shooter now, okay? Show me you're a shooter. This, this game is all about reputation, you know. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I always so in the Heat series, the Heat and the uh, and the Raptors. Uh, Joe Johnson started like 0 for 20 from three-point range. And uh, Luol Deng had his struggles. And, and, and so what happens is as soon as those guys miss two or three threes, the defense starts to contract. And because they're like, okay, so he's having an off night. We can play packed in. So now life is hard on Wade. It's hard on Dragic. It's hard on Whiteside while he's healthy because it's so crowded in the paint. Juxtapose that with, let's say, Kyle Korver or Clay Thompson. Those guys can go 0 for 40. The 41st one, you're still guarding him like he's going to make it because they, they live off the reputation of, you guys are great shooters. Whatever's happening right now that you think they're not playing well, it's an aberration. And so you you have to stay diligent with it, which, by the way, is kind of uh, was a little bit of a downfall for the Cavs in game one of this series. Is that Seth and Clay played awful. And then at the end of the game, when things started unraveling, they made crucial mistakes of letting Steph go one-on-one against Kyrie, and he, and he blasted him there. And then Clay Thompson comes down transition, and D.R. Smith runs to protect the rim for some reason, and Clay Thompson drills a three. Those guys, you always have to imagine that their next one is going to. You have to defend them like they're having the hottest game of their life. Andre Robertson is not a guy like that. He's not even a guy where if he hits a couple, he say, okay, he's like like the Luol Dengs or the Joe Johnsons. Okay, I better stay home. He's he's still it tonight. He can hit four, three, four, and and it won't make a difference. You still cannot respect that. And uh, and so in game three and four, he made those shots and he was active. He was crashing the boards and all that. And then eventually the shot abandoned him because guess what? He's not a shooter. So you're saying it wasn't aliens? No, it wasn't. Not not Andre Robertson's okay. game. <laughs> okay. Well, the other thing that the Warriors did, and not to get too far off in the weeds on the on the Oklahoma City series, but the, the Warriors took not guarding him to a, to a whole new level. It wasn't just not guarding him outside. They just lost track of him over and right. over. He got layups and dunks for two games. Well, and again, that was something he did not do, not, neither during the regular season, nor through the playoffs, nor through the first two games. So that, was, that was an adjustment. Uh, I guess you could you could give uh, the Thunder credit for that, for making that adjustment. Saying, hey, if they're not going to guard you, don't just stand in that corner. Uh, feel free to crash boards and cut. Uh, but again, you know, it's only a matter of time you're going to get away with that before they figure it out. So, I mean, tell me why, and tell tell Warrior fan why Game Four of the Cavs series will be different than Game Four of the Oklahoma City series. Unless you think that maybe it's not. Well, I, I think I think for one, I uh, Kevin love my play. <laughs> that's that's going to be interesting. That's one thing. For another, I think you know in the Thunder series, um, the Warriors are playing their good lineups, and they just weren't getting it done. And a lot of that has to do with the they're bothered by the extreme length and athleticism of Golden State. You know, out of uh, Oklahoma City, I, I talking to people last night. I said the funny thing is. If I ask you right now, who played the Warriors the toughest this year in the regular season? 
Let's see. Let's, let's do a trivia time. Boston. They play them tough, but there's a, there's another name. Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Milwaukee, and that's a, te- a team no one would. Because people say Boston because they're a playoff team and they're known for their scrappy defense and all that. And they beat okay. them at home. I mean, Boston and, beat them. And, and they beat them. And they beat them. Beat them in, in Golden State. And people might might say Golden State, actually Oklahoma City, because they were close games and all. That. But Milwaukee was the one as a clearly sub five hundred team had problems beating <laughs> beating other sub five hundred teams. For some reason, they played the Warriors immensely well, and the reason why is because they have. 18 guys with 9 foot 11 wingspans and they just crowded and made life really miserable for the Warriors. And so Oklahoma City had that. They were like a, a good version of, of Milwaukee. And when you talk yeah, about... play was 0 for 9, I remember, in the game in yeah. Milwaukee that broke the streak. He was 0 for 9. Yep. You know, uh, so, so when you talk about uh, what Oklahoma City was doing, it wasn't that the Warriors needed to make a, a were making mistakes. It's just it, they had to. It's almost like they had to execute on the floor. Game three in the finals, they made an immense tactical error by trying to stay big, which was, I mean, I, 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 the moment they went small, I, I would have imagined the Warriors. Oh, thank God! Now we can just play our small lineup the whole game and just run it out of the gym. And instead, this is they're running post ups for Bogut, and I, I just I didn't understand. And again, you know, again, it's the first half. You stick with what you got, but coming out of the halftime, there was no point in playing Andrew Bogut or playing big at all. Okay, so that's the Warriors lineup conundrum, is will Steve Kerr make the similar change to what he did last year in the playoffs several times? Um, And, well, one time was a lineup change and one time was a strategy change. But uh, will he show his adroitness at that kind of adjustment or will he not? Now, on the Cleveland side, a very interesting decision for the Cavaliers because with what to, what to do. And let me ask you this first. I mean, has any player's perceived value ever dropped more precipitously after a game in which he did not play than Kevin Loves last night? Oof. Uh... Uh, I, I, it brings to mind Patrick Ewing in the, like, 99 when there was this theory that, oh, the Knicks are better without Patrick Ewing. And uh, they kept citing their record with him, and then when he's out, they keep winning and all that. This is Spreewell and Marcus Candy. But um, obviously Patrick Ewing had, at that point, what, 15 years of a Hall of yeah. Fame career, so it's a little different there. This is a guy that, you know, uh, even – during the playoffs, was thought to be a crucial part of this team's machinery, and and you know missed a game, and and they just played great without him. Both ends. Yeah, yeah. And I, again, I mean, part of that is it's not because he's not a good player, and it's not even because you know they can't play those guys together in general. I just think this particular matchup is not good for them uh, with those two players because. <clears throat> Because of the intelligence of, of the of the Warriors players, they're just so smart. They they execute and they exploit weaknesses. Well, and and one of the things that uh, that I saw yesterday before this game was a, uh, a website called Basketball Breakdown, which had about a six minute video showing how the Thunder defended Warrior plays and actions compared to how the Cavs defended the same plays and actions. 
and it was stark. I mean, I mean, it was just, you know, the Thunder, even if you had a successful screen, the defender was long enough and quick enough to make up the ground and still block the shot or at least bother the shot. They, the way they played the passing lanes that, I mean, you had to be perfect and lucky to, to get a shot off against them in those two games, in games three and four. Um, and an effort. They gave a supreme effort on defense, the, the Thunder did. And the Cavs' effort in games one and two, I mean, really, you, you'd really start laughing as you watched these videos and you watched Kyrie not even in a defensive stance as his man, you know, you know, set a screen and, and no position to get into that, into that ball care, ball handler. And, and last night it looked like a completely different team. Can they replicate that effort? Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy to replicate the effort when your offense is going, when you're feeling good and you're violent. The Warriors come out uh, and smack them in the mouth as they should have in game three. Then in the old, uh, <laughs> The, as the old saying Mike Tyson goes, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Uh, and that's pretty much what the Warriors need to do. They need to punch them in the mouth because Kyrie and, and, and a lot of the Cavs players, I would say, they are the type of guys who defend according to how well they're playing offensively. Playing well offensively, oh, I'm engaged in defense. Oh, let's play, let's do this. I'm, if I'm getting, you know, if I'm, I'm struggling or whatever, then all of a sudden the the... the Aptitude and the the attitude on the defensive end wanes as well. So the Warriors have to play better defensively, and it's interesting. I mean, because the the breakdowns against Oklahoma City in games three and four were were defensive. I mean, they had offensive problems too, but their their defense allowed so many easy shots and the ball having to take the ball out of the basket constantly, not getting any transition baskets or points off turnovers, um, just made it such a slog. And and now here we are again, and I, I have a, a psychological um, theory about this too. And and you you've been close to the game. And uh, for those who don't know, I mean, worked in the front office uh, with the Phoenix Suns, and and then uh, wound up um, in the media, which is as, as I said, interesting. I'm going to tell you that it's interesting, but but we don't have time to really go into it. Um, but you you've been in the building, so you you kind of have a better sense of how these things ebb and flow emotionally than people who haven't been in the building. And to me, a team that's won 73 games, that has a very, very high basketball IQ, and knows that they're better than the other team, and just played two games that showed it, even without their top players playing great, they were much better than the other team, they're not going to be able to lie to themselves and tell themselves that it's going to take maximum effort to win that game until the other team shows them that it, that it does. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think the Warriors, I mean, that's, I've always felt from the very beginning from last year, it's about their defense more. It's the idea that they they have all these like-sized players who are long and, and incredibly smart and can switch everything and guard multiple positions. That's what makes them special. And then offensively, they're explosive, but they could survive offensive doubts in a way that most teams couldn't because um, – because they could defend you. They could just, they, they, last year it was almost a signature of theirs. Every game, there will be a stretch where they say, all right, not only are you not going to score, we're not even going to let you get into the action that you want to get into. So you want to run a high pick and roll? No, we're going to trap you. We're going to make sure you never get to that screen. Right? And it's, it's, it was actually a sight to behold last year. This year, 
I felt like the even as they've won more games and been even more looked more unstoppable at times, I felt like the defense took a step back. And they're still mm-hmm. elite. They're still elite, but it's not the same as it was last year, um, and not as consistent as it was last year. And so for games one and two, they defended awesome. And game three, they came out and, and that's what it was. Called. It wasn't wasn't the lack of point scoring. It was that they didn't. They couldn't stop anybody. And they, and I mean. They they couldn't stop anybody, and that's that's a problem for them. But again, it's not because they're not capable of guarding. It's just because sometimes that happens when you're precocious. You, sometimes you just playing hard every time isn't isn't as uh, isn't as as important. It's, it's it's hard. It's hard to play hard, and when you and when you can tell yourself, you know what, I don't have to play hard. We can still win this game. And the other part of that, and I and I would be remiss to not ask you. You know what you think is going on with Steph Curry because that's the that's been the X factor. They could play defensively like that in most games this year and still win. You think about the games against Orlando and Miami and Atlanta. That one swing where he just won the game for them, and he's not capable of that right now. Yeah, I I think when you talk about what's happening with Steph, so the first two games. Um, and, and I actually talked about this on the jump with Rachel Nichols. We had the clip from PTI from 2008, the game between Davidson and Loyola of Maryland. And the coach for Loyola decided we're not going to let Steph Curry score. So he literally double teamed him wherever he was on the floor, regardless of whether he had the ball or not. Steph shot 0 for 3 that game. Ended up scoreless for the first time in his collegiate career, and Davidson won by 30. So <laughs> the the moral of the story is, Steph, more so than probably any other player in the world, has an immense impact on the game without ever touching the ball or scoring it or passing it to anyone because the defense has to pay so much attention. And what happened in games one and two is Cleveland made it a mission that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson would not beat them. And so they did that to the detriment of stopping everyone out, and everyone else destroyed them. What happened last night, I thought, was on top of those guys not playing well, they didn't defend, right? you got to be able to make those stops in order to give the offense a chance to get that spurt going. But if everything is always digging out of a hole, it, it never, you, you never have that chance. And again, a big part of why they didn't defend last night beyond effort and just, you know, just from basically showing up was lineup. You know, they played small and the Warriors tried to play big, and that was just not the, not the smart move. Well, I mean, the other thing is that in addition to shooting poorly, which, or, or, or in the case of that Davidson game, not getting shots, Curry is playing poorly. He's not defending. He's not handling the basketball. He's throwing the ball all over the place. And that's what's uncharacteristic. The Warriors have seen him either go through shooting droughts before where he misses a lot of shots, or even, as you said, where an opponent can decide we're going to take him out of the game. We're not going to let him get shots off, in which case he gets the ball to Draymond. It's four on three, and, and they're going to score 120 points that way. But he's... I just I think it's the knee, man. I really do. I just don't think he's 100%. Yeah, well, you know, it, 
he hasn't been 100% the whole time. I know a lot of people, oh, and he's in the shots, he's 100%. Like, no, he, he really hasn't. But that's, he pulled out the Olympics as a result of that knee. Um, uh, and, and, and truth be told, yesterday at media availability, Ethan Strauss, who covers the Warriors for us for ESPN.com, told me, that's not right. That's not right. And I said, what do you mean? I said, the knee's bothering him. This is at 12 in the afternoon. I said, what do you mean? He's, you know, he's fine. He's all right. And, and sure enough, last night, he, he didn't look himself. But again, I, I go back to they're good enough to where that shouldn't matter. Well, here's the thing. I I agree it shouldn't matter if the Warriors respect that piece of information um, and and either play him accordingly, don't play him accordingly, uh, try to make sure that they're only using him in spots or against players where he can still get to a spot and get a, and get a good shot off or handle the ball because he he almost played them out of the game last night and he did the same thing against Oklahoma City. There was a there was a sequence in the very beginning of one of those two games in Oklahoma City where he brought I mean I mean the first defensive rebound the Warriors got and they got it to Steph and he was bringing it across the timeline and somebody picked it from him from behind like easy like he didn't even know the guy was there it was so weird and, and I just I don't think he's um let me hit you with a stat no NBA team I'm sure you've heard this no NBA team has ever won the finals when they had the MVP and the MVP missed more than one postseason game. And Steph's missed yeah. six. So uh, he's, Pop, you know, he's missed six. Pablo Torre had, had this man. I wish I had it in front of me. He, when he was on the jump, he had this full screen graphic where it was forget MVP, just uh, games missed by top two players. Um, on team, and the team still end up winning championship. I think the 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 in the last like thirty five years or something, the most was uh, um, what's on Chris Bosh that year uh, when he had the abductor strain in Miami. He missed like he missed games in the postseason or missed yeah, games in the regular in the, season. We're talking about the postseason. Postseason missed games, and and he missed I think it was five games or something like that, and. The Warriors, they're somewhere. In, uh, what do you, how many games has Steph missed this year? Six. Yeah. Six. So it, it was. I mean, it, it's it's amazing that they they've gotten this far, really. Right, because the stress. You know, I mean, yeah. people can look back and say, well, they still won Houston in five, and they still won Portland in five, but the stress. I mean, that Portland game five, I argued at the time, was a closeout game because if they had not won that game and they had gone to Portland in game six, they would have lost. Portland would have had energy, confidence, home court. They would not have won in Portland. And, by the way, Bogut wasn't going to be able to play, and Draymond had just rolled his ankle. And and then they would have had to come back and play a Game 7 against those guys, and who knows what happens in that game. They had to win Game 5. It was every bit as big as the Game 7 against Oklahoma City. Now, I promised you I was not going to keep you too long, and I've already gone past that. But I want to to test you. You tested me on what what team gave the Warriors the hardest time. There are two... 8-0 8-0 and streaks going into tonight's game. One of them will fall. This is just like Game 7 of Oklahoma City where either you were going to have a team come back from a 3-1 deficit or you were going to have a home team lose a Game 7. 
one of those two NBA tried and trues was going to go by the boards. Now tonight we have not tonight tomorrow night we have two eight and O streaks and they can't both survive that night. Do you know what they are? Eight and O streaks. Uh, one is I know, or well, at least I think I know. I thought Cleveland was undefeated at home, but I know that's longer they than are. Eight games. Is that they that's eight? one of them. They, okay, they're eight and O at home. Um, the other is I, I believe. Well, it's not game four is because we know they lost the game four against Oklahoma City. Um, I'm stumped. You know, I don't know. This, I, and, you're, you know all, and this is this is what you get for doing the podcast with me. Is I'm going to give you this, and you can use it. Warriors eight and zero in the playoffs this year, with one day off between games. Oh wow! That, that is they've not lost. Every one of their losses in the playoffs this year, and they've had a pile of them. Have been with more than one game, one, more than one day between the two games. Well, that's, that's 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 pretty interesting. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, especially nobody used it. I haven't seen it anywhere else. I thought of it my own self and looked it up, and uh, and then that's my gift to you. I mean, for taking the time with me today to do this. Thank I you. Appreciate it. Uh, and and I'd like to to, uh, to chat with you again sometime and, and get more into how you got where you are and and what you're doing and and uh, and all that stuff because I do think it, it it gives hope to people who just love basketball and really know it inside and out but don't have the name um, or the or the the background to get into a spot um, like like you're into. I will ask you one more question. You have such deep ties with both of these teams. Because you work yes. with, with the Suns, and the Suns are all over this a, final. Just last year, they're just everywhere. A, in fact, this year more because Channing Fry is involved, which he yeah. wasn't last year. Everybody else is back, and Channing Fry is is there. Um, and and I know part you you follow the Warriors, you respect what they do. Part of you, I'm sure, would love to see David Griffin pull off a championship for Cleveland, the first one, 1964. I, Absolutely, Griff's my guy, and, and as I as I said, as I like to say to people, the key to success in life is leaving the Suns because everyone who's left has been wildly successful after after leaving there, you know. And and uh, you know, Griff's a great guy, and he's a mentor for me, and um, you know, I really learned a lot about the game and the business from him, um, including uh, you know, and I credit him. And and uh, obviously Steve Kerr, um, they let me be me, and I think and a lot uh, that sounds really egotistical, but uh, you know I I kind of I, when I get introspective and self uh, self aware, I realize that I'm I'm while I, I think I bring certain values to the table, I'm also a very eccentric person and personality. And I'm a very, as you probably guess, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm a very blunt person. I don't, I don't sugarcoat. I don't dance around. And um, those guys understood where I came from, in, in that aspect, and they allowed me to do that because they knew they could extract what I was trying to get across and not get bent out of shape. And that's not true of many, many people in this league. A lot of people are really stuck on who they are and kind of. How dare you speak to me that way? How dare you address me in that way? How dare you present to me this thing in this form or fashion as opposed to just 
just accepting the information and using it to, to make the best decisions going forward. And so um, I have a ton of respect and admiration uh, for Griff for, for allowing that to happen. Um, and help well, let me tell you away. something that, that happened um, between me and, and Griff, um, and we're talking about David Griffin, the general manager of the Suns, of the, of the Cavaliers, rather, former assistant general manager of the Suns when Amin El-Hassan was working there, and Steve Kerr was the general manager, and, and you must have felt like you were in fairyland. I mean, how great would it have been no. to work in that front office? Oh, my God. It, yeah. It was, no, it, it, it was actually, I, I, I often joke around with both Griff and Steve, I said, you guys ruined it. You guys ruined it because I yep. actually thought that this was what it was like. This is what basketball front offices are like, and everyone's like this. And, and when they left, I got a rude awakening. No, 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 no. The real NBA is petty and agenda-filled and, and, and uh, you know, unnecessarily bureaucratic. And they were just great guys who loved basketball and knew the game. And since a lot. Well, and, uh, and, and here's the big thing. And, and it's funny because Griff was – when I met him, he was – he was still going to college. He was an intern in the Suns office, and I was covering the Suns for Cox Communications. And we just became good friends because I, I had been an SID. That was my that was right. my background. So I really understood what he was an in, intern in the PR department. So he and I really connected on that on that level. And we would stay late after games. I was single, and and he was single, and we'd stay late after games in, in the press room and just talk about all kinds of stuff. And after a, a couple of years of that, he said to me one day, we were talking about Bob Adlock who's a, the guy yeah. who put us together today. And he said, you know, you just can look in some people's eyes and you can just see that they get it. And Bob Adlock gets it. Yeah. And Bob I mean, Adlock. I have no doubt that he felt the same way about you. He felt the same way about me. And that's why he invested time in the friendships with both of us. Obviously, he felt the same way about Steve Kerr, because who wouldn't? Everybody, that's the guy everybody understands that Steve gets it, which is why you are scratching your head till it bleeds, trying to yeah. figure out what he was doing in the second half last night. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's, it's a real compliment to you that that he was telling me that at the time, I think you were probably in high school when he was telling me that. Yeah. And... And uh, but that you were going to come across his radar screen, and he was going to pick you out as a guy that gets it. And as you know, NBA front offices are filled with people who make a lot of money, and they don't get it. Not only they don't get it. I, I tell you what, John. Let me tell you something. Don't get it is one problem, but what's even more disturbing is they don't care, and that's the scary one. When you see someone who is clearly there just to cut a check. Just to live the lifestyle, just to stay at the, at the Ritz on the road and fly in a private jet and BS with the guys and go out and, and you know, maybe grab a gal or two on the road. Like, well, there are guys drawing humongous checks. That's how they, they, they operate in this business. And that's the problem. And that was the one thing that I really admired about those guys is that we were all basketball lifers. If we were working in the kitchen at Red Lobster, we'd still be watching the under-18, uh, you know, FIBA Europe championships, you know, on someone's kind of a, a laptop, uh, give me a tablet or something streaming with grainy video, because that's the kind of people we, we, we are, is we're, we're actual basketball people. And by the way, speaking of actual basketball people, have you ever played basketball with Bob Adler? Um, you know, I, I'm, I must have at some point. Oh, if you, if you did, you'd remember. I got you. Okay. It would have been a long time ago though. So yeah. I might not. 
um, I, I I think that if you if you're ever wondering, folks, how many people even at the general manager level don't get it, just Google GM Survey 2016 or 2015 rather, the one that was done last off season, and look at how many general managers, if given the choice, would have started their team with Steph Curry, because it's zero. Well, zero. Uh, after I, I, he I, was the MVP, after he uh, won the championship and was the MVP, zero general managers. And if you hate your team and you wish your team was better, think about this. Your general manager is one of the 29 who said, ah, Anthony Davis, ah, LeBron James, ah, Russell Westbrook, not Steph to, Curry. To, to be fair, to be fair, I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one. Right. I think when we watched Steph Curry last year, he he had become, you know, everything we'd hoped and dreamed and more. But it's uh, 12 months ago, you sat me down and said, hey, me, see that guy over there? Next year he's going to be even better, way better. I would have known you're crazy. You can't get, like, I thought Steph Curry would be as good as he was last year for, you know, the remainder of his main prime and then, you know, tail off or whatever. To tell me that he would have improved the the basically more than any MVP has ever improved in the history of this game, which, by the way, is another reason why I thought he should have won the most improved player. Because no, to improve at that level, is, even in, incrementally, is so much more difficult than to be C.J. McCollum, who basically, I didn't play last year, and this year I am playing. And I'm just as, right. just as good as I was last year, but there's no Wesley Matthews or Anna Flower or any of these other guys that are me. Right, that, that's what happened with T.J. McCollum, a fine player, well, uh, definitely deserving of the award in the normal sense. But Steph Curry's improvement, I don't think anyone could have could have foreseen that. But I would argue, I mean, two things, because argue is what I do. Um, I would argue, number one, that if you looked at his age and his improvement arc and his work ethic, you could at least guess that he was going to get a little better. A little better. And he better. already was the MVP and won a championship. A little, a little better. So he, he was not even a if little he got, better. I'm just wondering, but he's not a little better. Well, no, know? no, I know, I know. I, he, he, I agree that he improved, you know, way beyond what anybody had a realistic expectation. But that he wasn't a guy that that just won the MVP this year, although he had been that good for three years. He he had gotten steadily better, and when Kerr came in, that was an exponential change because the offense changed. And and you could and then the second year with a coach like that, when everybody knows the offense coming in, you again you could just and, and that whole team was back. I, I just feel like to to not say I'm going to start my team with this guy who's a great guy, who's a great a great person to build a locker room and a team around. That 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 GMs just took the lazy way out. They've just picked Anthony Davis, who's never proven anything. Why would you start your team of all the people? that you could start your team with. I mean, all of them, and there were like, I don't know, 20 of them that said his name, they all would have failed miserably this year. Oh, yeah, I, I got to go back and forth. Right, let me get like this way. I get it. I get why people would take Anthony Davis. If you say start your team, you're talking about a guy who's 21 years old, who, who really is, in a way, the future prototype of this league is a big man who can protect the rim and guard on, on the perimeter and post up and pick and roll and score. And uh, you know, and shoot from the shoot threes, and eventually will be able to handle the ball uh, as well to make him an even uh, you know better than he already does 
you know, in terms of pick and roll. So, and the big thing is starting a franchise book. Because the idea is, okay, I want like 10 years with this guy. Um, and in that way, because no, I don't think any of those guys, you have to, is he better than, than LeBron James right now? No. Is he better than Kevin Durant right now? No. Is he better than Steph Curry right now? No. But the idea is start, we should start a franchise with. Like, oh, but I got to think about like 10 years from now, who, you know, what's going to be going on as opposed to, you know, the shorter windows of obviously of, of those aforementioned players. Okay. I guess right. what I'm well, saying, I, 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 I don't take it as, as big a fight because I get, you know, the framing of it. But now, if you want to argue about the who's going to win MVP, that's a different one. Like that one you can, you can get upset about. Okay. All right. Well, I'll get upset about that because you gave me permission. I mean, I'll let you go. I know your availability is, is soon, and I know you guys are going to go in and you're going to ask Steve Kerr if he's going to change his lineup, and he's going to say no, and, and then he's going to change his lineup. You know, yeah. he lied last year. He's going to lie again today. I, I don't see any. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. And Ethan was surprised last night that, you know, that the Kerr didn't react to his question. I think in the press conference and and acknowledge that you know some thought about the lineup tweaking has to be given. But why would he say that in a press conference? What 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 does that serve him to do that? Well, in Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma City series, or no, it was the final. I think I can't remember. I, man, all these days, these days don't remember. When one of his pre-game availabilities, uh, he was asked about that, and he said, uh, I know you haven't set the lineup yet. You haven't set the lineup. Do you know what it is? He said, yes, I've known. Yes, I know what it is. So are you going to tell us? No, I'm not. And then later on, someone asked him, well, if you're not going to tell us, can you at least tell us when you came up with the decision to whatever lineup you're going to do? And he said, I'm probably going to anywhere between two to 48 hours ago. And he said, you know, he, he, he loves to play around like that. Well, the, he, um, he learned that at the feet of the champ of at Popovich. Yeah. So, so why not? I'll let you go. Thank you so much for the time. I look forward to talking to you again. And I, I really do enjoy your work on, on uh, the various ESPN platforms. Thank you very much. Robin. Thanks. I mean, I mean, El Hassan.